This video is not sponsored, and members of the team have been community investors in nothing. Carl Pei is an entrepreneur who was initially renowned as the co-founder of OnePlus, but he didn't stop making waves after his departure from the smartphone giant. Venturing beyond, Carl introduced the world to Nothing, his latest tech company that promises to redefine the way we perceive and interact with our devices. With an ethos rooted in transparency and simplicity, Nothing seeks to strip back the superfluous, focusing on pure user experience. Since its inception, Nothing has garnered significant attention and anticipation. It shows Carl's commitment to innovation and challenging industry standards. In this episode, we'll delve into Carl Pei's individual philosophy as an entrepreneur, his transition from OnePlus to nothing, and explore his influence on the tech landscape. With that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the special episode of Through the Web. First of all, to begin with, how would you describe yourself uh, in general? Who is Carl, Carl Pei in your own words? Uh, I think I'm just a very normal person, but through luck, circumstance, timing, location, I've been uh, um, I've been able to do some really interesting things. So today, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Nothing. The problem we see with the world is that the tech industry and consumer tech in particular has gotten really boring, and uh, it's a very hard industry to break into. So. There's only a couple of like really big companies and they're not really pushing the envelope anymore. And then there's us. So I see that like we're in the right time and the right place to really do something interesting and try and make the industry more fun again. Before we dive deeper into into what you do with nothing, um, we also want to know a bit more about yourself. Right. So um, t- take us to your early days. Um, you know, from what I know that your parents were um, researchers, if I'm not mistaken, um, did they have a part to play? towards your interest in tech? Um, and if not, uh, what did? Yeah, I think my parents being researchers kind of made me understand that that's not what I want to do with my life. Uh, I have nothing against researchers. I think it's a very noble and fun job for those who like it, but uh, it just wasn't that interesting for me. I kind of grew up on the internet. My parents were quite busy at work, but I got a broadband connection when I was really young and um, I got a computer, so I spent a lot of time online on message boards, uh, making my own websites and chatting in chat rooms. I think that's kind of where the, the interest in tech came from. Through the internet, I could discover a lot of new tech products. And um, now I don't remember the exact sequence of events, but I was actually the first kid in my school to get the iPod. The first generation, it was like super, it was super hard to use because it was still using Firewire. Um, so I had to install a FireWire PCI into my computer. Uh, it was using Real Player, I think, for music transfers. Uh, but you know, I was just so so into it in the beginning. And throughout my life, I've always been the first person among my friends to adopt uh, new tech. I just just found that really exciting. Um, I think looking back, I was kind of weird uh, as a kid. Like um, I would behave quite differently, but I don't know why I did it. Um, I'll give you a few examples. Like um, in middle school, we would get homework. Like in chemistry class, we would have to write a essay about a certain co- compound. And instead of just writing the essay, I would make a music video explaining the the element, or uh, I would make a website where you could interactively kind of learn about the element. 
And it was always kind of weird for me that I didn't get any extra credit on any of that. The teachers just marked the work as is, only the, the essay part. But I just kept doing all these uh, different things since, since I was younger. Uh, so it does seem like your parents had a part to play, but in a, in a different way. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Where you definitely knew that you weren't going to research. Uh, but it's interesting that your uh, your mind kind of drifted towards a lot of creative things, um, despite you know the the day to day homework that you that you got. Um, what was there again, like an inspiration? Because you know we're gonna touch on nothing's creative side of things, which is very very cool, and, and we're gonna go deep into that. But the early days, was there anything specific that inspired you to be that that creative on those lines? Uh, maybe it's out of boredom because I wasn't that engaged in school. If I'm honest, I skipped a lot of classes and played a lot of computer games, spent a lot of time on the internet. So maybe school was a bit boring for me, which is why my mind kind of uh, drifted into other areas. And I also think maybe it's due to some kind of uh, rebelliousness as a kid, you know, feeling like, oh, this is too easy for me. Or, um, I remember one of my friends, he said, when he used to do exams, he used to write the essays backwards um, because it was t too easy just for a, for a challenge. I'm not that smart, but maybe it's something along those lines. Sounds okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's probably a, probably a good trait to have uh, that curiosity early on and kind of figuring out what you do and don't like. I think that can come in quite handy for, for a lot of people if you know how to direct that kind of energy. So, yeah. Um, so you grew up in Sweden and moved to China for a gap year. And then you worked on a project to do with MP4 players. And you've mentioned in an interview that your parents weren't quite happy with that. So I don't know, it seems like a bold decision. So what was the reason behind taking that leap of faith? Uh, at the time, it was just pure gut feeling. But I think I wanted to clarify that gut feeling is not something random. It's like the, it's the combination of all the experiences that you've had up until now. And suddenly you have this thing that you really want to do, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes through all your experiences and you might not know why you might not be able to justify it at that time. But um, I think, you know, that's why I did it. Growing up in Sweden, I, I learned a lot on the news about the Chinese economy that I was growing really quickly. So after high school, I decided to just go and see it for myself. Um, I, I felt completely disconnected and I just wanted to see what was going on there. So I moved there, I think I was 17. Uh, my parents were really worried. They wanted to have me write like a week by week plan on what I was gonna do, but I, I couldn't do that because I just wanted to go and explore and see what's what's happening there. So they were really unhappy about that. Um, eventually I started exporting stuff. So from clothing to MP4 players, um, yeah, that's what happened. I, I stayed for a year. After a year, my parents got a very, impatient so i had to uh to move back and study uh, i just want to ask so what year would have this been roughly i think this would have been 20 2007 2008 so a long time ago right right because um yeah i was getting into mp4 players around the time of yeah 2005 2006 during high school so like i got a creative zen and i used to download all this stuff from LimeWire and just watch it at school. <laughs> and I was like my version of having like portable media. And I just thought that was the most fascinating thing. So I guess like, yeah, uh, it's just, you know, that, that, that time, those new technologies are really something. So in your time over in China, did you, was there something that caught your eye 
that said, okay, this was a good reason for me to come over or was it fruitless in your opinion? I, I think it was really good. Um, the economy back then was developing really quickly. So everybody was super optimistic about the future and people dared to dream big. So I think those are some of the lessons that I uh, took away with me from that one year. Okay. Yeah, philosophical. Right. And you were also very young at that time, right? And and basically in your early 20s is when you co-founded um, OnePlus, right? Um, and I'm sure in your early 20s, you know, diving into a big company, a big adventure like that, a lot of people might not have taken it seriously because of your age. Um, has that happened? And, and how did you get around that and, and had the you know confidence to keep pushing on? Because th- that was still a very, very young time to take such a big step towards a big company. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think I've just been super lucky um, to have met people who have given me, given me a chance despite my age. But I also think ultimately, I think the beauty about what we're doing and also what you guys are doing is it doesn't really matter who the gatekeepers are that much as long as you make the users happy, the the audience happy, the consumers happy. If the consumers love you, then it doesn't really matter how you look or how old you are as long as you keep making them happy. So I think, uh, sure, there are gatekeepers, but I mean, now with in the age of the internet, like there's fewer and fewer gatekeepers. We can get our uh, content out to anybody in the world. So... Uh, as long as we deliver great product, I think, uh, you know, age matters less and less. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you were briefly at Nokia and then you went to Oppo and then OnePlus. Was there any lessons learned in that time period that was transferable to what you're doing today in nothing? You know, the common theme has probably been that I've been studying Apple uh, for a very long time because at all those companies, they were somehow competing with Apple and we're all always analyzing what Apple is doing. So um, maybe the common theme or the learning is actually learning from Apple because if you look back now uh, over the past 10, 15 years, Apple is a company that's been the most successful out of all those companies you mentioned. I think Apple's uh, attention to the product, the user experience um, and innovation ultimately made them a winner. Okay. So I, I guess you you have a um, I guess an admiration for for Apple in the way that they relate to the consumer, but only in terms of how their experience is. Would you say? I would say it's probably even deeper than that. So um, for me personally, a lot of my career, like the reasons why I I got into tech and um, got interested in tech products, but also I'm working in tech. It's because of Apple. I think the work they did in the 90s uh, in the early millennium uh, was really inspiring. And also the founder, Steve Jobs, like I I can almost uh, recite his Stanford commencement speech. Like it was a big role model for me. I think now it's looking back, it's a little bit sad because in our era right now, and if people are growing up now, like who are they going to really draw inspiration from? There's Apple of the past is not really the same as Apple in 2023. Uh, they're a much more established company. They still have great products, but I think they've almost become the de facto uh, default choice for if you want a you know solid product. And uh, there's this void. Um, 
I'm hoping that eventually we're going to be able to fill this void and also start inspiring young people to maybe consider a career in tech. Uh, but, but we still got a lot of work to do. Okay. Um, I guess we'll, we'll dive a little bit deeper into nothing now. Uh, so you said in the past that the reason for doing it was because if you don't do it, nobody else will. Um, so I guess it's an incredible headache to kind of take this huge gigantuan task on. So I guess like what, what decided you to, um, yeah, to actually make the, the path to do it? I actually think everything in life is hard. Um, sure, what we're doing here at Nothing is quite hard and quite ambitious. But, you know, even working a nine-to-five is hard. Um, even running a hot dog stand is hard. You still have to worry about a lot of things in life, a lot of things at work. Actually, I think running this company is not too different from running a hot dog stand. You got to have a good product. You have to generate demand. You got to have good people. You got to make sure that there's cash flow. You're, you're funded. Um, you just have to deal with all the same problems, but on a on a smaller scale. And I think the beauty with uh, building a slightly larger company like ours is that you get to work with a lot of other people. And if you can find the people that are better than you, smarter than you, then it might even be easier than running a hot dog stand. Yeah, very wise words. So how do you how did you go about finding those people personally? A lot of the people that I currently work with are people that I've gotten to know throughout my career. Um, even some of our early investors are people that I made friends with during during my career. So um, the reason why I say it's I'm just I'm, I feel really feel like I'm just a just a normal guy like everybody else. But because of some of the choices I made early in life, moving around, choosing um, choosing certain industries, choosing to pitch certain people, reaching out to certain people, over the last ten years, I've built um, a good network, uh, basically. So, you know, when we started, we we had a core team that we could work with because doing something like this is very hard because the value chain is very long. You got to think about everything from supply chain to manufacturing to hardware design, software design, engineering, uh, sales, marketing, customer support, and I'm probably missing some stuff, but it's just very complicated. Um, so you really need a solid team. Mm. It seems to me like this kind of sector would be quite hard to break into because of that large you know, chain that's going on. So like what, what gives you the, like, how do you, how do you make sure everything's in check and organize how things are going? It is hard, but I think you just got to start. And to be honest, we encounter a lot of challenges since starting and there's no easy approach. You find a problem, you figure out the best way of solving it and you move on to the next problem. But I think for us, um, what's, what's important is to think, in a system like okay we we have this problem but what's the underlying root cause of this problem and what systems and what processes can we set up to make it smoother so this same thing doesn't happen so it's kind of like we're building a machine but the machine is not the smartphone the machine is a company and we just got to make each component work with each other um okay another question would you consider that the nothing brand is a disruptor and if so what does do the, the disruption of the tech industry mean for you? I think we have the potential to become a real disruptor. I think today we're, it's probably, we're still in our warm-up phase. 
because to get something like this off the ground, there's just so much groundwork and foundation you have to lay. Like for instance, when we just launched the phone one, there were a lot of things we wanted to do on the software side, but we just didn't have the team. With the phone two, we took a large step forward and I think people are really enjoying some of the differentiation we're bringing in the software. But the roadmap is actually way more ambitious than what people can see right now. So I think if we're able to build a solid company, we can eventually become a disruptor. And for me, disruption means you gotta just you gotta bring value. Like you gotta you gotta impact people's lives positively. When you talk about consumer tech and when you talk about you know smart devices, I think today's user experience hasn't really changed from uh, the Symbian system. I think it's like twenty years ago or t fifteen years ago, um, you still have your apps. And you got to launch different apps and you got to go between different apps going back to the home screen. It's not very efficient. Sure, if you look at the phone, it's gotten a little bit better in all aspects. It's a, it's a lot more smooth. It's a lot faster. The camera's a lot better. The batteries are better. The connectivity is better. Everything is better, but we're still on the same path. It's just better than before. But other, other things are also worse than before. Like um, social media is making us really dumb, I think. Like... Social media is supposed to connect people with other people. It should connect people we care about, right? We should feel closer to the people we care about. But I think the current situation is actually the opposite. We feel further and further away from the people that matter to us. We're following random accounts. Now the algorithm is recommending just content that's making us addicted. Um, so some things have improved and some things have gotten worse, I think, over the last 20 years. But for me, disruption is actually bringing a change in how users interact with technology. And the change will only happen if your product is much better than the current status quo. Um, so I think that's real disruption. I think we're still a couple of years away from taking our shot there. Okay, you said a couple of things interesting. Um, I, I, do you recall, just as a side point, I think Elon Musk said it, like to be dis truly disruptive, you have to be an order of magnitude better than the competition. But um, so you did say that the modern smartphone in terms of its uh, user interface isn't that efficient in terms of going to an app and going home. And then can I ask what kind of things you would suggest in its place or in that system's place? We don't have the perfect idea yet. If we had it, we would start working on it. But but I just think about um, some simple scenarios, like if you want to watch a movie or if you want to grab coffee with a friend like you just have a very simple intention and in order to execute that intention you have to do a lot of things on your phone you have to go into multiple apps some messaging apps some uh, yelp like app to find the place you want to meet up or to book your ticket you need to get from point a to point b maybe it's through some mapping software maybe it's through uh some uh, some ride hailing software there's just too many steps. It's not efficient. If there's a way of delivering your true intent in a more human way, faster way, I think that could be, I think that's the goal, but like, how do you get there? I think that's the tricky part. Yeah. It's kind of like, as you're saying this, it's like, or oh, maybe some uh, voice recognition, <laughs> some crazy AI could like come into that. But um, I don't know if everyone yeah, would use that. Yeah. But voice recognition is also like a question mark because, um, Voice assistants have been around for a long time, and they haven't really been adopted in, in in mass quantities. And also, humans are very visual creatures. Like we process much more information visually than 
through hearing. So I think whatever that interface is going to be, we need to be really, really thoughtful about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so in between the issues of the pandemic and all of what that caused, and on the other hand, you have like other tech companies growing like crazy. What has been the biggest challenge for nothing thus far? There's a ton of challenges like, um, you know, not being able to meet investors in the beginning when raising money, raising over Zoom. Supply chain was really difficult. Building a team was really difficult. Nobody wanted to join this kind of no-name company when we just started. Um, but I think the, if we had to boil it down to one thing, it's probably personal growth. Um, I think that's the number one challenging thing because our ambitions are very big and the complexity of what we're doing is just going to increase with time as we have more people, more products um, that we're building. And whether or not I can grow fast enough personally and learn new things fast enough to be able to handle all that complexity because yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge because there will always be challenges and the challenges will keep getting bigger if the company gets bigger. So can the individual, not just me, but my other co-founders, my leadership team, the wider team, can they grow together with the challenges? I think that's the main uh, issue that we'll face. Right. Um, I'm going to switch a bit, bit of gear now here. Uh, you said in the past um, that uh, the community was the biggest aspect that worked well for the success of OnePlus when you, when you built it. Uh, and it seems like you're taking a very similar approach with nothing where you're focusing on very niche core fan base um, and building building from there. Um, why do you think that's such a critical aspect to the success of a tech company? I think the beauty of it is that we now have a lot more experience than we had in the past. So a lot of learnings from the past that we can apply. But taking a step back, I'm quite curious why we're kind of ignoring the invention of the internet. Um, and what I mean by that is like people who, who are starting companies today or starting tech companies today, they're kind of taking the same methodology as you would do 40 years ago before the consumer internet became a thing. I think with the internet, you can connect to anybody anywhere. And because of the internet and information being freely available for everybody, you can have super passionate people with expert level expertise anywhere in the world. They might be on a tropical island. And I think in modern society, people lack purpose. So if we're able to find these really excellent people and we're able to connect them to a purpose that they want to be a part of, then can't we build a new type of company together with, with the community out there and not have a traditional company where, you know, that you could have built 40 years ago. I think that's that prospect is really, really exciting. I mean, we're there's so much we can do there. Um, I think we're just barely scratching the surface. You know, we have a on our board, we have a community representative um, always holding us to account, like making sure on the strategic level we're doing what we said we're going to do in our vision statement, our mission statement. Uh, we have a lot of, I think, over 8,000 investors uh, from our community. So, you know, they're a part of this journey financially. Um, we have a beta program where we develop products. Some of our community members, they so so we have this control app for our earbuds on on the phone for iOS and Android. But our community made the the same uh, functionality in an app for Windows as well. And it looks quite good and it's feature complete. Um, we're seeing a lot of great industrial design concepts coming from our community now for 
how future nothing products could look. But I still think it's like this is not even one percent of the potential of where community could go. I think we can really erase the boundary between a community member and a team member in the future. Wow, you know, I've never ever heard that before in terms of what what you first introed that with where. Companies nowadays are still starting up like they would have forty years ago before the invention of the internet. And all of what you said, I, I haven't actually heard that before, so that's really cool. And it's, it's true, and it shows as well that the community aspect that nothing has. Um, it shows that you do care about that. So, so well done on that. Yeah, like even just before I was looking at Reddit at some of the posts and seeing what people were saying about the hype of nothing, uh, and a lot of the people were saying because there was such a strong community focus with OnePlus and you, and it's starting to happen again with nothing. They, they believe that the potential for this is very large. It's the start of something. So it's not that's not something that you really hear about a company very often. So I think you're doing a good job with that community bit. Hopefully people will also understand that our ideas have evolved and changed and strategies are a bit different. But I think we may need a bit more time for um, people to really realize that. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um, you've also mentioned in the past that design language was a very important important component to Nothing's um, product's identity. Now, I personally love you know, design, and and honestly, some of the stuff that I've seen uh, with with Nothing, you know, it's, it's very cohesive with uh, with the font, the the packaging, the brand identity. Um, has it been uh, enough of a differentiating factor for for Nothing? Um, with just its uh, great design of the products and, and the packaging and everything else that comes with, I think it's a it's been a it's been enough differentiation to help us in the first couple of years because we're still a very young company. We're not even three years old. So if you rewind the clock to a couple of years ago when we we're just starting, and you have these tech companies who have huge R and D departments developing some really cool technology, we want to get there, but we couldn't have done that in the beginning because we didn't have the resources to. So we were thinking, how do we actually break into the market? We have to be different somehow. And I wouldn't say design is easy, but from a resource and time perspective, it's much faster to differentiate the design than to invest in core technology and eventually have your own technologies. So I think if you look back in the last three years, that strategy has worked. But I believe a tech company has to become a real tech company. Like you have to have your own technology that actually pushes the user experience forward, makes the product better, and is unique to your own company um, that your competitors don't have. That's the only way you're going to be able to compete in the long run as a consumer tech company. Because if you don't, I mean, design is cool, but like fashion is also fleeting, right? So maybe the first couple of years, people love your design. And then it's really hard to always stay on top of what consumers want next in terms of how things look and feel so it's if you get lucky it's good but it's not something you can bank on forever and on the topic of design i think there's a very uh important question that we have to ask here what is the origin of those glyphs the origin of the glyph the design team told me it's um it's like a japanese kanji character of love or it's the same character in chinese actually love but to be honest, I don't see it. Uh, I think it was just, it was just, you know, sometimes you design something and you, you try and sell it and you tell a nice story. I think that it was that, but I, I still love it. So no offense to our designers. Uh, they did a great job, but 
that story doesn't really hold up. <laughs> and and uh, that's that's fascinating that you know you personally don't don't see it as the CEO of the company, but it's it's still I th- a lot of people still can. So I think that's that's quite quite an uh, interesting kind of uh, I guess juxtaposition there. But uh, in terms of marketing as well, it seems like you guys. Um, really take care of of how you approach the the, the market in terms of um, you know very interesting, intriguing, mysterious campaigns that you've come up with. Um, uh, very secretive at start, a little bit of doses of you know hype, and then really you know go 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 all all in. What's the the creative process behind those those campaigns? If you have any insight uh, from from the inside, I think similar to what we just talked about in design, like as a startup, how do you with very limited resources, try and get the try and get the company successful. Like in marketing, how do you get the name out there? So I think that's what our marketing has been all about. But throughout the three years, I think our team has gotten a lot stronger. We we have a lot more resource. So I think the if you like the marketing now, uh, you'll love the marketing in the future. I think the golden years for our marketing is in a couple of years and not in the past. Wow. That's uh, and and, and what, why do you say that? What what's the reason behind uh, behind that? Because it's been three years, um, and we've learned throughout the three years, and we have more resource than before. We have um, a bigger team than before, and you know, in the beginning, this is not just in marketing, but throughout the company, it was just really hard to hire people. Like people felt this would never work out and who are these guys who think they can challenge this industry um it was really hard to hire people like we could we we just hired whoever we could get in the in the beginning but in the last one year or so after we launched all these products um gotten some good reviews for products it's really changed so i think that's why i'm saying that the best years are ahead of us it's all our capabilities uh, are getting stronger Right, not that, that makes sense, and and also, uh, it seems like you you guys go really hard on on YouTube and and, and social, and specifically YouTube. You know, the the Phone Two's launch, um, I you know saw nothing pretty much on my feed constantly. Right, uh, first of all, why this specific decision to go really uh, strong on YouTube and on the socials, and and secondly, is there an insight that you can share in terms of conversions? Like like, has it actually worked in terms of um, really going all out on on socials? Uh, I think to answer this, I would just like to share some philosophy uh, on kind of how the internet has developed and maybe uh, feel free to challenge that if if it's wrong. So when the internet just came out, it was more like a homepage-led content discovery. So you would go into yahoo.com or cnn.com or engadget.com and then you would just read all the content there. Um so I still remember when I had to log in to, like, I had all these, like, muscle memory of all these uh, URLs that I had to log into to just check what's new. And then social media came and RSS readers came. And it basically, it became a following-led discovery for content. So I no longer logged into those websites. I just followed the websites that I am interested in. And whatever reader I had, if it's RSS reader or Twitter... I just cherry-picked articles that were important to me. Uh, what happened there was that the social media platforms got more traffic and the content got less traffic, the articles got less traffic. But now I think we're in the, the next stage, which is it's algorithm-led. 
it's no longer homepage led, uh, nor who you follow. Like you can have a lot of followers, but still have no reach if the content doesn't work for the algorithm. On the converse side, like you can be really small and have no followers, but if the content really works, it can go really big. So that's kind of the underlying logic to why we have to do great content. I don't know if you guys agree with that. 100%. Yeah. I think it's I definitely think it's, changed over the last few years for sure. That's pretty accurate. Um, and I guess it's good that you're thinking about these things because I guess not many people in even advertising like really understand that that change, and especially for a hardware company and, you know, really going down to um, where the people are, you know. It's it's something that's that's quite rare. Because I think there's a real business value to this. If you're able to do this when other companies can't, then you have a big advantage because you can reach out to way more people and the message is a lot more authentic and um, it's organic. So you don't have to pay for it. And if other companies don't have that skill set, then you're at a huge advantage compared to them. So when you talk about ROI and conversion, has it led to conversion? Actually, I haven't even checked because I think in very simple terms, like if millions of people watch your content and they like your content and they watch for a long time, then won't they start loving your brand after a while and won't they start buying your product after a while? Um, because the smartphone cycle is quite long. Like I think it's two years to three years, depending on country. So we might not be able to see anything immediate, but I, I don't see how it can go wrong if you create good content that people love. No, absolutely. And I think the next frontier is creator-led businesses in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, The biggest creators in the world now have businesses that are worth millions and maybe billions in the future, right? So I think you've kind of adapted that approach before a lot of the companies have even begun to realize that that's the way forward. And as creators, I love it, right? I think I'm sure Dugogo agrees as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good time. We're kind of uh, becoming competitors in a way, <laughs> but in a friendly way. In, in, in some ways, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Um, so a bit of a random question, but would you consider yourself an introvert? Uh, I've done these personality tests and um, I, so the first letter is E or I, right? So E for extrovert, I for introvert. I jump between. Um, so all the, all the other three letters are the same, but the first letter will jump uh, in between. So sometimes I feel like introvert. Sometimes I feel like extrovert. I, I don't know if that's okay or not, but yeah. yeah, no, that that exists. I think they call it ambivert. Yeah. So a bit of a bit of both. Yeah, yeah. So I guess like when you're in your introverted stage, how does it feel to be putting yourself out there so much? I think for me, a lot of it is just a building repetition. Like, I'll give you an example. The, I think the first time I had to hire somebody was in 2012, and for that job interview, I was so nervous. Like, I was way more nervous than the candidate looking for the job. Um, but now I've probably done like thousands of interviews uh, with candidates and it's second nature to me. I know exactly what to ask, what to look for, all the kind of signs to look at. Um, so I think it's the same. The first couple of times doing YouTube content was really awkward. Um, it still is a little bit awkward if I'm honest, but I think it, it's, it's getting better and over time it'll get a lot better. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I'm, I'm going to stick with that, that um, YouTube line of conversation and ask you about uh, what was it like working with Casey Neistat as an investor? You know, I'm, I'm, it's more of a personal kind of selfish question because I'm a big fan. But uh, in terms of uh, his 
involvement with with nothing and also i think in fact first i've heard of the company through him in a lot of ways so what has that link up been like for you guys uh it's been great i think we got to know each other in 2015 and we just kept the conversation going kept the friendship going um you know when i decided to start nothing i called him and looking back at the pitch back then the pitch was really really bad um very cringe and not very clearly thought out at all. And I'm just very grateful that he chose to invest based on his belief in me and and the team. Um, when we started getting more serious about YouTube, it was just very natural to go to him because he's the OG. He's he, like he he's the, the the one that invented all of this. So um, learning from from the OG that was our idea, and um, I was really grateful that he wanted to participate in the phone two launch video. And I think it turned out pretty fun. So I guess, you know, you're doing a lot of online marketing and you're in the online space more than others, but I guess it's no surprise to anyone or it's, it's not a, you know, a new fact that things are a bit more polarizing these days and people just love to hate everything. So how do you deal with the negative comments? Do you kind of compartment, compartment, compartmentalize them in a personal way or do you see it as constructive criticism sometimes or do you write it off or do you not think about it how do you navigate that i think it's not just online it's everywhere so even within within our company we have uh, uh, these all hands meetings where all the staff attend and you can ask anonymous questions and uh, some of those questions are very uncomfortable to to read and to have to answer um, and a lot of my friends who are also founders have said, like, we don't do those anonymous questions. They're so toxic. But I refuse to remove them because I think, one, no matter online or internal, like, if people complain, they care, right? If the, the worst thing is that people are just, they don't care about you at all. Like, they're complaining because they care and they want to see things improve, I think. So that's something we have to remember. And two you have to improve. Like if you don't improve, people are going to complain. So, so it kind of pushes you to get better. Um, but you know, it, it does feel quite bad sometimes, you know, reading all those comments or uh, facing up to, to those kind of questions. But I think you just got to believe in that there's a, it's beneficial in the long run to, to, to take the feedback and just get better. Um, you've mentioned many times in this interview that you've got, um, a very big ambition for for nothing. So um, the question is, what does success look like to you personally as, as Carl? And, and what does success look like for, for nothing in the future? Uh, I think for me, and I mean, it's, it's so intertwined with the company, so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to separate it. But I think we're, we have such a good opportunity. Um, this is one of the biggest industries in the world for consumer products and it's dominated by just very very few companies and they're not going to take big risks because they're already successful and if they change their business model or change who they target it's a huge risk so they're not going to really push the technology forward i think and on the other hand you don't have any small companies competing in the arena because it's just so difficult to break in so like it's almost like history has given us this really cool opportunity that we're the only ones that can do something really different in such a big industry. So my hope is that we can actually deliver on that 
chance that we've been given and try and push technology forward um, and provide real value to, to the world over time. So if you could do this all over again, what would you do differently? Uh, I wouldn't do anything differently. I, I know we made our fair share of mistakes and we're always learning. And um, I made a lot of mistakes in my life outside of work and outside of nothing as well. But I think mistakes or troublesome moments are just medicine, right? And sometimes you need the medicine um, to just get better. Like sometimes if you don't make a mistake that really hurts, you're not going to learn until next time. So I wouldn't do anything differently because doing anything different would mean that the outcome would be different than the one today. And I'm pretty happy about where we are today. Right. Yeah, I think that's a healthy way of looking at it. Like your mistakes kind of are part of who you are and part of your journey. So, um, Yeah, they're, they're your teachers. Yes, yes. Painful teachers were good ones. So uh, I guess going towards the end of this now, um, I guess what, in the whole entire field of consumer technology, what are you excited about? Where do you, where do you see it going? Where do you think the future of it is? And how does, that, how does nothing tie into that? It's quite an interesting industry. So it is very competitive. There's some really strong people around the table, but there are not a lot of competitors. So there are a few really strong ones, but they're very few in number. So I think every company has their own kind of idea on what to do and where to bring innovation in the future. And what's so exciting for us is that we have a seat at the table. So we can also have our, our own vision of where to take things. And I think as a smaller company, we can be a lot more nimble and move a lot faster. So we actually have the opportunity to help shape how humans uh, interact with computers in the future. If we play our cards right, I think that's the most exciting thing. So where do I see things going? I, I think there has to be a change. Like Somebody has to for once do something different like this current interface it's, it's been around for too long like, uh, this can't this can't be the final stage of human computer interface right like there must be something better in the future and somebody has to make it yeah okay well uh, in that in that sense i'm curious to see what you what your thoughts are on the ha apple's recent headset i think if you want to make a headset this is the best uh, their positioning is the best because it's focused around productivity it's almost like a Mac Pro on your head. Like you can do a lot of uh, productivity scenarios even better when it's immersive. But I don't think it's a product you're going to be wearing for eight hours or five hours a day. Um, for us, we're more focused on these really high frequency products that you use for a very long time because that's where we think we can make a lot of impact. Um, but Apple, I understand, they already have these products. They have great computers, they have iPhones, so it makes sense to go there. But for us, we're focused on, I guess, an earlier stage of our journey. Right. Just just one, one more question. Will there be a nothing laptop in the future? Uh, we were toying with that idea. Um, and we have some really cool designs, but we haven't decided yet. I think because as we... As we mature as a company, we need to start thinking about what is it we're bringing to the table. We had the conversation about design, like is design our only differentiator? Has it worked out? Well, I think it has, but over time it needs to be more than just design. 
So if we were to make a laptop, what is our contribution beyond just really, really cool aesthetics, which I'm sure our team can nail? So that's a question we haven't been able to answer, and therefore there's no computer in development. I mean, on, on that thread, do you have any exclusives for this podcast at all? <laughs> just just really my shot. Know what, what ex- you can just say nothing, <laughs> and, and that encompasses everything. So. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Lewis, any exclusives? No, he's shaking his head, doing this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, look, I think I think we've reached uh, the, the end of the episode. It was really, really good talking to you, Carl. But do you have any final uh, message for our listeners um, or any, any parting messages at all? Yeah, I would just, um, I would like to encourage people who are listening, if you're interested in tech, um, you know, don't be afraid. I think uh, nobody is smarter than anybody else. Like, you know, just get your hands dirty. Um, the tech industry needs more people who want to build and help build a better future and less people who just want to make some quick money. So uh, please do consider a career in tech. Fantastic. Beautiful. Awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. That was, uh, that was sick. Thanks, Carl. Really cool. appreciate your time. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see bigger, better, fantastic stuff coming from, from nothing yourself. Awesome. I enjoyed this. Um, if you guys are in London, uh, it would be good to catch up in person as well. But for now, uh, get some sleep. <laughs> for sure. For yeah. sure. Well, yeah. you know, can't wait. Likewise, uh, yeah. Perth, <laughs> yeah. come down and, and we'll, we'll definitely have you on. Yeah, appreciate the time, man. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Carl. Me too. All right. Cheers. See you. Bye-bye.